The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. It's very clear from the Bible that Jesus taught not only in words but in object lessons. I have wondered sometimes if perhaps one day one of my grandsons would ever become a pastor. I don't know the answer to that, but in the possibility that they might, one of them is going to come visit me this morning. I'm asking my youngest grandson, Theo, to come up to the pulpit to help me out before I read the Scripture today. I notice he's coming barefoot. You, you can tell he's, not a, he's a casual Presbyterian. This is Theo. I wanted you to see him and think about him visibly for a moment. Our society, of course, worships status and idolizes success and prestige. You need to have titles, degrees, a resume, accomplishments. That's how you become somebody important. Meet somebody who doesn't have any of those things at all. No resume. I don't think he's been to college yet that I know about. But the amazing thing is that I find in the kingdom of God, God and our Lord Jesus Christ values something different. He says he values acknowledgement of helplessness and simple trust and childlike humility. In fact, it seems from what Christ says that this boy in my arm, seven months old, is an ideal person, someone who has the qualities that God wants all of us to have. And as you look at this child, I raise two questions. Do you realize that with no achievements at all, no status at all, already this boy has a Savior's guardianship and safekeeping surrounding him in his life for however many years he lives until he can make that thoughtful, rational decision for Christ. He belongs to the Savior. And something else I ask you as a question that he represents. Do you further understand that as much as our God wants this boy to mature and grow up and accomplish things, Instead of him becoming more like me, the Lord's aim is that I become more like him. Thank you, Theo. I read God's word to you this morning. Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to read from part of the first 14 verses and then another portion in Matthew 19. Matthew 18, 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them and said, I tell you the truth. 
Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Verse 10. See that you do not look down on these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one wanders away? Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? If he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. And now, if you'd go to chapter 19, a related passage at a somewhat later time, we believe. Chapter 19, verse 13. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. This is God's holy word. Today, the message is very much a direct continuation of last Sunday. And while I don't normally mention this, I think if you're interested and you want to see a broader base for what I'm going to say today, you could get and should get the CD of last week's message because this is a continuation in every sense. We saw and concentrated on David's strong prediction in 2 Samuel 12 of how he expected as a man of faith to have a reunion in heaven with a child, a son of his, who died at the age of seven days. And remarkably, that man of faith seemed utterly sure that that little child with no abilities of comprehension or thinking or will towards God being able to be expressed, was safe in God's eternal hands. And yet, we also noted that David, on a later occasion, cried out with wailing and woe over his son Absalom, the adult son, the accomplished one, the guy with the resume, a super resume, in fact, who was fully mature and yet rebellious towards God and his father, and David wailed for Absalom as if he never expected to see that son again in eternity. Now, I mentioned last time that there are other evidences, and I'll come back to a few of them before I finish today, but things that help us bring some threads together to form a working conclusion or hypothesis And it comes from more from inference and from logic in the Scripture than it does from any single bold statement that we believe young children of believers in the Lord at least are assured of eternal life. Should they die? Should they not reach adult maturity? We believe they belong to the Lord. The amazing thing is that a particular thinker who many considered to be the most stalwart proponent of the doctrine of election, that, that they might suppose this individual is, is not in favor of that idea. John Calvin 
personally held that infants and young children who die are to be considered among the elect. Calvin reasoned that anyone who would not be God's elect person must be able to live into adulthood so that they could, in effect, accumulate evidence of unbelief and act out their unbelief. And thus, as Calvin put it in his terminology, they needed to procure the fullness of their apostasy by their actions and unbelief. And others throughout church history have joined Calvin and many thinkers in assuming that God saves the very young and also the mentally deficient persons who cannot come to that point of professing and understanding, making what we call a decision of rational faith about Christ. Now someone says, well, then draw me the line and tell me where the age is. Where's that age that here a child is not yet responsible for that decision, and then here they are. Can you tell me the age? I'd sure like to know so I can be working extra hard as my child approaches the invisible line. Well, of course we can't do that. Only God would know that. But we are considering here what would be called the exceptional work of God's grace, not the norm. The norm is clearly understood for those who know the New Testament gospel. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's very simple. You must believe. But isn't it fascinating that when Paul addressed that Philippian jailer, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And he added, you and your household. Interesting. And the man and his household received baptism that day. Certainly the mature reason, decision of the mind and will and voice that speaks for Christ is the primary way that the gospel is received. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you believe that God cannot possibly work any other way, then do you understand what you're saying about young children and about those who in this world, I told you last week about our niece, Becky, who couldn't see or hear, who had cerebral palsy, who died at age six and a half. Where do the Beckys fit in your conception if God can't work in any other way? Today I seek to put forward another step, the case for infant salvation, as you hear from Jesus himself. We didn't get to him last time. And what he thinks surely is very important. We're looking now at Jesus' teaching on children in the kingdom, and we look in a place where technically that is not the main subject, but it's more of a beneath-the-surface understanding. Matthew 18 and 19. You know, based on these passages, you've gone into many church nurseries in your life where you've seen some kind of a picture on the wall of Jesus with little children around him, maybe one or two in his lap, and he's smiling, and the whole thing is very benevolent and and rosy, and everyone gets a little dewy-eyed, Jesus and the children. Well, I don't mock that, but I just want to make sure that you're not thinking about the Scripture we approach today in purely sentimental terms. We have to think about what the Scripture means and what it is saying, not just some kind of idealized thought that we would impose upon it. If you would notice the life situation that is being addressed 
in Matthew 18, you would understand that it is initially not the subject of our infants saved. In fact, it was that old subject that kept popping up as the 12 disciples constantly had this rivalry just under the surface. Which of us is going to be greatest? Who's going to sit on the throne next to the Lord when he comes into his kingdom? Uh, That was coming and going. It was being discussed frequently. Well, here's an answer to it. As they were asking it, Jesus knew they were asking. They probably didn't want him to know they were asking it. But he called a little child. The Greek word is one for a little one like Theo, not a 12-year-old, not a 15-year-old, a little child. He called that child into their midst and said, Look, unless you change, unless this rivalry of how can I be great in God's sight changes, and you become like this little child in its helplessness, in its complete trust on its parents, in the obvious recognition that it can do nothing for itself, it's totally humble, unless you become like this, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this text, in a sense, in in its initial intention, is not about, is a child saved? It's about, will we, as adult disciples who profess Christ, have that childlike quality of total dependence on the Lord, of a repentance that comes and says, Lord, I'm helpless. I can do nothing to save myself. My works aren't going to do it. You're not impressed with me. Lord, I'm, I'm like a baby where the things of eternity are concerned. Help me. Save me for your own name's sake. You see, we tend to say that in order to be converted, a person should become more like an adult. But isn't Jesus turning it around and saying, you adults need to become more like children and demonstrating a trust and a faith that I see as acceptable. Now, for years, I read these texts, and actually, I always probably had a little bit of secret level in which I despised those who tended to sentimentalize this into Jesus and the children. And, you know, that rosy little cloud of of Jesus just loves little children. I said, no, it isn't about that. It's about adult disciples being childlike. And that indeed is the primary meaning of this text. But is it all that this text says? And here I would argue it's not. There are other things implicit in this text right beneath the surface that are important to see. Because here is Jesus pointing to a little child as an analogy to illustrate a quality of adult faith. Doesn't it extend in your mind in a very logical way to say if this little child has the qualities that God wants for faith, then the child being used as an example is a member of the kingdom. In other words, is he using an example that doesn't partake of the truth he's talking about or that does, indeed, as a special object of God's saving grace? What kind of an example would it be if Jesus said, of such is the kingdom of God when no such little child is in the kingdom of God? It would be logically ridiculous. He wouldn't teach that way, I don't think. It would actually be a grand contradiction for him to say, you need childlikeness as a prerequisite for salvation, but these small souls I'm talking about don't have salvation. 
Most of us certainly do not believe our Lord was saying that. And in fact, by logical extension, the verses we've read here in Matthew 18 and 19, we think do imply indeed that children, by God's special act of grace, they have the grace of the cross of Jesus applied to them. Now, notice I didn't say they're completely innocent and, you know, they're, they're white as snow and they're, they were born under sin. They were born under the curse of Adam. They need a Savior. But we believe that God, apart from their profession, apart from their reasoning, understanding, applies His grace to a child whose life would be taken away. Or that one, as I said, who could never reason or understand or profess Christ. Look at a couple of key things in this, in this text here. Verse 10 is a remarkable statement in Matthew 18. Jesus says about these little ones that, quote, their angels in heaven always look upon the Father's face. Now, with apologies to the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, the Bible technically doesn't teach that every individually has a guardian angel. If you would ever find a verse that would come close to it, this is probably it if you want to literalize this verse. Most would understand this idea of their angels looking on the Father's face as more of a figure of speech. After all, Hebrews 1.14 says angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation. They do many things in their mysterious existence to benefit those of us that are receiving the grace of God. But it's an expression, we think, in verse 10 that Jesus used to say, look, these little ones... These children that I've held up to you as an example are the special objects of God's protective care and watchfulness. He's ever mindful of them. Don't ever forget that. And so don't interfere with them. Don't think of them as somehow worthless people, not real adult persons yet, who don't have value. They're of special value to God. And in fact, in an earlier verse there, in verse 6, he gave a solemn warning to anyone who would lead the little child astray or bring damage to them. Look, too, at verse 14 with its strong conclusion where it says, it is the will of your Father in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish. What's perish mean? It's a code phrase in the Bible for the opposite of eternal life. If they're not going to perish, it means they have eternal life. It is the will of your Father in heaven that they have eternal life. And then notice in Matthew 19, 13, again, as Jesus blesses the little children, physically puts his hands upon them, welcomes them, blesses them. Do you think the Son of God was just going through a charade of some kind, a little little token performance there that wasn't a real blessing? He wouldn't indiscriminately pronounce blessing on persons who he thought were going to be cursed or rejected as reprobates from God's salvation. No, we don't say what we say about Jesus and children based on naive sentiment, but on what appears to be the clear example here and logic and inference presented here that they are the objects of God's special regard and care. And whether or not they have formed a reasoned profession, there is a time in their young and tender lives when God would certainly be their Savior should they leave this earth. 
Well, that's all I'm going to say about that and bringing that piece into our argument. But now I want to back up and try to summarize the biblical evidence that we've seen so far that might tell us we've got a special case here in the, in the case of child salvation. I remember very well the earliest prayer that I ever prayed. I, probably my mother taught it to me. We didn't actually attend church until I was in first grade, so I didn't learn it in church. But I'm quite sure I was praying this prayer before that time. Many of you know it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That prayer has got some real stern theology in it, doesn't it? I can remember. I have actual memories. I wasn't scared. I wasn't terrified. But I can remember the light being turned out, the covers coming up, my mom would probably tuck me in, and, and then I would, right away, the first thing, I had a whole period there of age five to seven or so where I probably prayed that prayer myself, laying on my bed every night. And I remember thinking more than once, might I die before I wake? That's a pretty scary thought for a six-year-old. But I don't ever remember being terrified or having a nightmare from it. In fact, I think there was a comfort in the idea of, that the Lord would take my soul. And I think even there, in, in that infant way, six, five, whatever I was, I was believing that the Lord would care for me. What confidence can we have about a child being the sure recipient, a young child, not of reasoning age, being the sure recipient of God's saving grace? Let's, let's bring the threads back together because it's not one big, bold statement. It's a lot of threads Remember the first one I mentioned last time. Texts like Psalm 139 saying, The Lord saw me, my unformed substance. He saw me from the time I was conceived in my mother's womb. That doesn't really prove anything except to say that we're the objects of God's very early compassion and care. He doesn't start noticing us when we turn 12 or 21. He knows us from even before the moment our mother knows that we're there. And he has a plan for our lives. Secondly, I mentioned last time how the curious expression pops up a number of times in the Old Testament. Jonah 4.11, Deuteronomy 1.39, half a dozen, a dozen other places. The expression about children in a nation, even a nation of Israel's enemies, since saying they are those who do not know their right hand I have to get this right because I'm sort of, my wife will tell you I'm sort of dyslexic. Their right hand from their left. In other words, they don't have yet a moral, rational, complete accountability for either understanding things or being culpable. That distinction is made in God's view of peoples, even among enemy nations, non Israelite nations in the Old Testament. I mentioned another plank in the thinking one that I have heard especially championed by Dr. John Piper, a very popular writer and, and author and pastor today. Rising from Romans 1, 18 and 20, that important part of Scripture that says that humankind has the knowledge of God displayed in the created order, and God is seen in what is made, and therefore all people, without exception, are without excuse because God can be seen in the things that have been made. But Piper says, turn it around. And others, by the way, he's not the only one, but he seems to be a prime representative of this. He says, turn it around. And what about those who can't yet see, or maybe by mental 
deficiency will never see the evidence of God in creation. Are they without excuse or are they with excuse for not being able to understand that which God has put in the natural realm? Then last time, a fourth item, we heard David, a man after God's heart, saying in 2 Samuel 12, my son, my dead seven-day-year-old son will not come to me, but I will go to him. And many take that as a prophetic word of truth. It's like a beacon light there in the Old Testament saying that at least the child of a believer, that one who looks for his salvation in the true God can look for that for his children and build from that the whole idea of the covenant, which I'm barely touching at all today. And then we've added today a fifth plank to the argument that Jesus himself says, of such as these little ones is the kingdom of heaven. Well, all of that makes a safe conclusion out of something that's in our Westminster Confession of Faith. It has a statement on this that's a quite famous statement. Westminster Confession, chapter 10, part 3, says this, I quote it, Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when, where, and how He pleases, and so also are other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the Word of God. That is an excellent statement. It's excellent because it's so careful it determines to say no more and no less than the Scripture actually says. If a person is elect, it's saying there's no way they could be lost by dying as an infant, by, you know, being aborted or whatever. They can't be lost. But you see, it isn't taking the statement out to speak about all of humanity because the confession is being cautious. It's, it's erring on the side of caution, as the scholars wanted to do. And they're saying we're not going to even infer necessarily that, that every infant is elect. Can we do that? Well, I'm going to tell you today that there are certainly those who revere the Word of God and are staunch in their theology in every way who have done that and have drawn the inference from Scripture, the logical extension from Scripture, and the things like the teaching of Jesus that all infants and children who die are, if they would die before an age of mental ability to profess Christ, they are thereby seen to be elect. And there would be those that say, apparently, John, although he didn't say it in so many explicit words, everything John Calvin has written would let him be sided with that group. Now, I want to bring some others in to have you hear from them as I'm co- concluding this morning. I'm quoting only from people who love the authority of the Word of God, all right? There's no universalists in this crowd. Nobody who just says, well, everybody's saved anyway, so don't worry about it. No. These are people who love the salvation of Christ. John Newton, the hymn writer, I quoted him last week, but a different one now. Here's what Newton said. I am willing to believe until Scripture forbids me that infants of all nations and kindred without exception who die before being capable of willful sinning, who as yet have not done anything in the body for which they must give a moral account, are included in the election of grace. They are born for a better world than this one. And Newton added this, I assume this might mean that the number of infants historically redeemed to God by Christ's blood numerically exceeds the whole aggregate of all adult believers. 
That's a pretty amazing statement. Charles Spurgeon, no liberal there, man who preached the gospel with a fierce championship for Scripture. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, Among the gross falsehoods uttered against most Calvinists is, it is said that we believe in the damnation of some little infants. Spurgeon said, a baser lie was never uttered. Tell me what you really think, Charles. Continuing, what Scripture says on this subject may be scant, or in other words, not a lot of material, but I speak for many when I say that all infants who die are elect of God and therefore saved. Benjamin B. Warfield, great American Presbyterian theologian of the last century. Quote, the destiny of infants who die is determined irrespective of their choice by the unconditional decree of God, depending on no action of their own. Their salvation is wrought by the application of Christ to their souls by the operation of the Holy Spirit apart from their own will. One last one, Dr. John MacArthur, California Baptist theologian, excellent expositor of Scripture. I'm going to make available to you as soon as it comes in some copies of a small book by Dr. MacArthur. I've ordered 40 of them. It's a little book called Safe in the Arms of God. MacArthur said this. It kind of summarizes the thesis of his book. We do not say babies go to heaven because they are sinless, but because God is gracious. All children who die before they reach a state of moral awareness and culpability are counted as elect by God's sovereign grace because they are as yet innocent of that willful rebellion of unbelief even though they are born under Adam's curse. I've wrestled with this whole subject a lot in the last few months knowing I was going to speak on this on these occasions. I personally feel I have to take my stand with these men. I do take a step beyond the Westminster Confession's more cautious statement. I do believe that all infants, all infants who would die in this world before an age when they would be culpable for their sin. Now, that isn't, you know, of course, there are many, many who are going to grow up and be unbelievers, but all who would die before that, which includes, to me, millions of aborted children, It includes miscarried children. I had a mom come out to me last Sunday talking about this subject, and the first thing she said, she didn't even say hello. She said, Pastor, I have five waiting for me in heaven. Bless her heart. What a reunion that's going to be, five she's never seen. I believe the kingdom of heaven is occupied by millions of children who never drew a breath in this world, but their souls belong to Christ. You know, I learned a children's song, and maybe you did. Seems like ancient history. Had to be more than 50 years ago. In Sunday school, we sang, Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. It's amazing. As the choir sang, Jesus loves me this morning, that song resonates the same way. It's more profound now than it was when I learned it. Jesus loves the little children. If you've lost a child yourself or miscarried or by accident or disease and you've wondered and you've searched your heart, what's the meaning of these things? I can't tell you why it happened. 
We're not talking about that part. But if you want to know, will I see that child again? I stand here as a man who values truth and integrity. And I value the Word of God, and I say I believe there's a reunion waiting for you. A person you conceived in God's image, carrying your DNA, is going to carry that glorified image in a resurrection body when you receive yours one day at the Lord's throne. Meanwhile, as we deal with the children God has given us, let us give our best energies to raising our covenant children. This is serious business. Do we think as a church that the serious business is the dollars we send to the mission field or, or the adult Bible class or the men's fellowship or something like that? And Oh, what they're doing over there in the children's department. Ah, that's just children. That is job one. What we do with those children, God has entrusted to us for a short time to mold them, to pray for them, to read God's Word to them. You know what my goal is for the children of our Christian families here? I read it. I don't know who said this, but I read it somewhere. One individual said, every Christian parent should have as their goal that their child become an adult believer would have a boring testimony. Do you understand what they were saying? Is it, a, you know, is it a thrilling testimony to listen to when somebody says, I was in the drug culture and, and I was in jail five times and my life was falling apart and I was in despair and Christ turned it all around? Of course, we're delighted to hear that testimony. Praise God for it. But this individual said, may your children have boring testimonies. May they be those who would say as adults, when they come to join the church perhaps, or even as a 25-year-old, they would say, you know what? Mom and Dad made Jesus known to me. Their lives were authentic as Christians. It was for real in my home. And I cannot remember a time that I didn't love Jesus and call him Lord. That's the best. Praise God for boring testimonies. May we raise children who have such to the glory of God. Father, your word is so amazing. There are layers of things beneath the layers as we've seen here in the words of Jesus today. Holding up a child as an example of what an adult disciple should be and yet loving that child and already protecting that child as your own. Father, I pray that this might be a church where children are loved and protected and where the gospel of Jesus goes out through our families and through all our teaching and all our ministry, both formal and informal, to encourage and mold and shape and nurture children with boring testimonies. For your honor and praise. Amen.